This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture comes from the 24th chapter of Luke. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Be seated. As I've previously stated, this is our uh, final sermon um, on these unique passages in Luke's gospel. And so we've been studying passages in in Luke that are not in Matthew, uh, Mark, or John. And so our text today, what Jesus says about the Old Testament very succinctly and uh, his ascension uh, to heaven is an example of a text that is only in Luke and not in any of the other uh, gospels. So not only is this our last sermon uh, in this series, our text uh, is the last passage in Luke's gospel. And so if you think across the 26 or 27 uh, sermons that we've had on Luke, you, you will know and remember that Luke is a very brilliant and a very thoughtful writer. And, and so our text this morning is his last teaching. It's what he wants on our minds as we sort of take his gospel, uh, close it, if you will, and put it back uh, on the coffee table. And so if this is the crucial final uh, summary passage uh, in Luke, what does he want us to see? He wants us to see that there is one story, one role, and one power. He wants us to see that in history and in the Bible, uh, there's one story. He wants us to see that in that one story, there's one role, the same role for all of us to play. And he wants us to know that there's this one power that's going to provide us with the inspiration uh, we need uh, to play our role in his story. Okay, so first, the one story of the Bible, the one story of history. If you look at verses uh, 44 to 47, Jesus again emphasizes to his followers what he has just taught the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And that is this, that the Old Testament, that the Hebrew scriptures, they were and are all about him. Jesus in our text is claiming to be the hero of the entire Bible and of all humanity. This is, this is a very important passage to understand for your paradigm in reading the Bible. In summary, Jesus is saying, God was not up to one thing in the Old Testament and then another in the New Testament. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament pointed to him, longed for him, was ultimately and intentionally about him. He is saying from Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, the entire Old Testament 
is his story. Look at verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Jews of Jesus' day categorized their scriptures uh, in what we call the Old Testament. They categorized their scriptures into three sections, Moses, prophets, Psalms. And so in verse 44, what Jesus is saying can be understood one of two ways. He's either saying this, that in every section of the Hebrew scriptures, in all three sections, there are things written about me, and every one of those things had to be fulfilled in my life. Or he's saying, secondly, everything written in the three sections of the Old Testament is ultimately and intentionally about me. Either everything in the Old Testament about me had to be fulfilled, or everything in the Old Testament is about me, and I've fulfilled it. Which is it? Verses 45 to 47 make it clear. He is claiming the latter. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures in total. The word, the scriptures, is the title that Jews gave to their canon, to their Bible. Uh, It's literally the word, the writings. So it's the, the noun form of the verb that you see in verses 44 and 46. What was written, 44, what was written, 46, is the writings, verse 45. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the scriptures, if you want to understand the Old Testament, this is what is written, verse 46, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In verse 46, when Jesus says, thus it is written, he's not about to give you an Old Testament quote. This this text is not a quote from the Old Testament. He's not giving you a quote. He's giving you a summary of the entire Old Testament. Thus it is written is the same as saying, this is the writings. This is the scriptures. This is the Old Testament. That the Christ should suffer, die, and rise again for the forgiveness of sins through repentance. He's like, that's it. That's the Old Testament. Now I want to be really clear. Verses 46 and 47, what he says about the Old Testament, each one of those points, you can find a proof text for that point in the Old Testament. But he's not saying, I can prove what I'm about to say from the Old Testament. He's saying, this is a summary of the Old Testament. That if we read the Old Testament, any text in the Old Testament, if we don't conclude with the gospel of the Christ, we haven't read the Old Testament the way God intended or the way God intends. That if we don't, in the end, take every story, every law, every proverb, every prophecy, every psalm, if we don't take it to Jesus and to his work as the Messiah in salvation, then we have read the Old Testament in a way that God does not intend. Think about the magnitude of what he is saying. 800 pages in my Bible. He says every part of the Hebrew scriptures points to him, is only really understood in light of him. Every passage longed to be fulfilled in him and by him. Every passage is now from our vantage point in history, a clear witness to him. He is teaching us that all of the laws in the Old Testament that they were there 
not to tell us what we had to do to be perfect humans. They were there to describe to us the one perfect human. He's teaching us that every sacrifice offered by every priest in the Old Testament was ultimately telling us of the one great high priest who would offer up himself as the final sacrifice to bring an end to all sacrifices. He's telling us that when the prophets over and over and over say the righteous should be blessed and the wicked cursed, he's not telling us that the Old Testament was written so that we might try and establish our own righteousness. We can't. He was telling us to look for the righteous one who would be cursed in our place. Jesus is saying that every heroic moment in any leader's life in the Old Testament was in reality pointing to him as the ultimate hero. He's saying that every failure of every king in the Old Testament was there to make our hearts long for and find gratitude in the one king of kings. He's saying, think about the story of David and Goliath. He's saying to us, I'm the ultimate David. Yes, David went and, and he, he slayed the human giant that was enslaving God's people. But he says, I will slay the spiritual giant of sin and death and Satan. He's saying, David was just David, but I'm the ultimate David. I didn't just risk my life to bring my people freedom. I gave my life to give my people freedom. He's saying, think again about Joseph and the technicolor dream coat. In our text, Jesus is saying that when Joseph had mercy on and forgave and spread out a table of blessing in front of his brothers who forsook him, Jesus is saying that is a beautiful story of mercy, but it's ultimately and intentionally about me and how I would respond to my brothers who would deny and forsake me. But Jesus is saying it's not just a story that points forward to me. He says, I'm the ultimate Joseph. Joseph was thrown into a pit. He almost died. Jesus was thrown into the ultimate pit, and he died. And in dying, he brings freedom and rescue and salvation and provision to God's people. Jesus is telling us that if the result of us reading the Old Testament isn't gratitude for him, we haven't read it in the way it was written. Jesus is saying in those 800 pages that if we read the Old Testament and we beat ourselves up, we've made it about us and not him. We've taken it out of context. We're reading it in ways the author does not intend. This is huge. Think about how this unlocks the 80% of our Bible that we have no idea what to do with. We don't have to stay in those last 200 pages. What is the New Testament in my Bible? We can explore and enjoy and find life in the entirety of Scripture. Jesus doesn't say the Old Testament was a failure. We're up to some new ideas in the New Testament. He doesn't say God's putting the Old Testament on hold for a while while we do something new in this age. He doesn't say there's a few things in the Old Testament cryptically written about me. He says the Old Testament, the writings, the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, what is written is me. It's my story, it's my life, it's my death, it's my resurrection, it's my salvation. Luke is saying to us at the end of his gospel, first thing you have to keep in mind that is utterly crucial for your life is that you have to read the Old Testament with understanding, verse 45. It's like trying to watch a 3D movie without 3D glasses. 
If you read the Old Testament and don't remember that it's all about Jesus, things will be out of focus. Things will be flying all over the place. Some things might be recognizable, but generally you're just going to have a headache. Things are going to be fuzzy and you're going to want to vomit. But as you learn to read the Old Testament with the spectacles of the gospel on your face, things come alive. They become clean. They become crisp. They become unified. They're finally understandable. So again, Luke in his final passage of his gospel leaves us with these three crucial truths. First, the Bible is the one story of humanity and Jesus is the hero of that one story. But secondly, Luke tells us that in that one story, there is one role for all of us to play. We're not the hero of the grand story. We're not even the hero of our little story. But we, with the disciples, verse 48 are all witnesses of these things. Isn't that amazing? He puts out there this massive truth on how to read the Bible, and then he very simply says, we're witnesses of these things. In in the Greek language, verse 48 is so simply written. It is only three little words. You witnesses this. That if verses 46 and 47 are true, our lives can be defined very basically and very quickly. We witness this. What is a witness? Just think about it with me for a second. A witness is two things. It is first an experience and it's second a communication. Said differently, a witness is first knowledge and then proclamation. A witness is someone who knows something through experience, but also a witness is someone who tells other people what they've come to know through their experience. And Jesus was telling his disciples, your life will never be the same. Now that you've come to understand who I am and now that you've experienced what I can do, you are witnesses of these things. Well, what are these things? Jesus has just told them in the previous verses. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's not about achieving, it's about believing. Jesus is saying the Old Testament spoke about him and he fulfilled all that is, that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, uh, he's God in skin, he's God as a human. That the Old Testament is about him, that he lived a lawful and loving and beautiful and perfect life and then he suffered and died the death of a sinner, the death he did not deserve. After three days, God who died for man was raised up to new life in his glorious body, proving that he lived a righteous life. And because of this, in his name, may it be proclaimed, God will forgive anyone of anything when they repent. That because of this, in his name, may it be proclaimed that the repentant don't have to do anything to keep God's love or to earn God's love, but they have it completely and utterly in Christ. And Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling the men and the women in the upper room that the life that they had before him, uh, meeting him is over. And he's telling them that they now know the one story and they now have met the hero of the one story. And they are, verse 47, going to proclaim the gospel to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The book of Acts, Luke's second book in the New Testament, the second volume to his one history, the book of Acts is actually the story of these very men and very women bearing witness 
testifying to what they had come to know through their experience. It's the story of them bearing witness to the gospel. It's the story of them telling people who they had never seen, uh, people who had never seen Jesus. It's them telling them about Jesus. It's the story of them telling people they've never seen, that have never seen Jesus, about Jesus, and inviting them to join them in the witness of Jesus. That he suffered, that he died, that he was raised again, that repentance and forgiveness and love are free. And so the 120 bore witness. They didn't just experience Jesus or know some things about Jesus. They told anyone they could what they knew through experience in Jesus. And so from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and through the centuries, people have experienced and come to know Jesus through the witness of others. People have joined the army of those who will tell more people about salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation and joy and peace and hope. Do you know what this text is saying to us? What is Jesus saying to us? What is Luke saying to us in the final teaching of his gospel? That the basic task of all of our lives, the basic chore of all of our lives, the marching orders for all of our lives is this, to bear witness to who we have come to understand Jesus to be and to bear witness to our experience of the resurrected Jesus in our lives. This is the one role we are all to play in the one story. He's saying, tell other people about these things. Don't be a bystander who sees but doesn't speak. God took on skin. That's big news. Tell your neighbor. God died in our place so that we don't have to die. That's pretty huge. Tell your co-laborer. God will forgive you and God will love you forever by grace. Tell your relatives. God will give you joy and hope and peace forever. Tell your kids. God can make you different, more loving, more human. Tell any human with ears. Simple question. How long has it been since we were witnesses of these things? Have we ever been a witness to these things? The teaching of the Bible is that all of us serve in Jesus's kingdom. All of us advance Jesus's kingdom in unique and personal ways that not all of us are parents, not all of us are pastors, not all of us are scientists, not all of us are doctors, not all of us are teachers. So we all serve Jesus in the unique way that we've been gifted and the unique way in which we've been called. Further, the Bible teaches us that, that some of you are more better than some of us in evangelism. But that said, the Bible teaches that evangelism, bearing witness, proclaiming the good news is the one role we all play in the story of redemption. Our proclamation of the gospel now is how new people come to understand and experience Jesus. How long has it been since we were witnesses of these things? I know me. And I know a lot of you. My guess, my educated guess, is that we, by and large, really stink at this. 
that there are some glorious things about us, but that evangelism, by and large, is not one of those glorious things. If I know me and if I know you, I think that there are already at least four excuses popping into our minds for why we don't do this. In a preemptive strike of love, I want to name those four excuses and I want to speak to those four excuses from our text. How did this turn into a sermon about evangelism? I have no idea. First excuse, I don't really know any non-Christians and my life is so busy. I don't really know when or where I'm going to get to know someone who's not yet a Christian. Through the text, Jesus said that his followers were to go to all nations, verse 47. That we're to go out intentionally towards people we don't know who don't yet know him. That it's not okay to build a safe and insulated and busy and Christian life. That it is not okay to build a fortress and tell Jesus, if anyone can get through my maximum security, I will tell them about you. It's not okay. Jesus said in John 20, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Second excuse, I did evangelism. It didn't work. I wasn't successful. It was a waste of time. Look at the passage. What is success? Is success the conversion of the one you're speaking to? No. Success is bearing witness. Success is proclaiming the good news. Success is the call. Think about the witness on a witness stand. They're not the judge. They're not the jury. They're not the lawyer. They're the witness. They're simply there to tell someone else what they know from experience. Success for a witness is very simple. Tell the truth. I think our third excuse is related to our second excuse. I'm not smart enough. I don't know apologetics. They may confuse me. They may stump me. They may ask a question I don't know the answer to. I may get it wrong. I may say something wrong. I probably ought to just be the person who prays. What's the call from Jesus? It it is to proclaim to others what you believe about him regarding repentance and forgiveness. It is to proclaim to others what you've experienced in him. No one can take that from you. A a witness has come to some uh, knowledge through understanding and a witness will just tell other people about it. In my limited experience, I'm 38 today, by the way, In my limited experience, I've never seen someone come to know Jesus and radically give their life to Jesus because they lost an argument. Never. But I know of thousands of people who have had grace and forgiveness and mercy and salvation preached to them in the name of Jesus. And I know thousands of people who have believed and they have experienced radical transformation in their life. I know of thousands who have done a 180 in life because they listened to someone else tell them the story of how they found life, how they found identity, how they found hope, how they found contentment, how they found joy, how they found peace in the gospel of Jesus. Friends, this is my story. After hearing all of the logical arguments, after hearing all of the right answers, God used a waitress at a waffle house to change my life. She spoke of forgiveness and the peace that comes from forgiveness. I desperately needed forgiveness from all the sin I had committed against God and so many people. 
She spoke of the deliverance of God, that God worked in her life and was working in her life with certain addictions. And I sat there with the same addictions, desperately needing that same deliverance. She spoke of joy and contentment, and she bore witness to the love of God poured into her heart by the Holy Spirit, and I broke. I desperately needed the joy and the contentment she had. No logical argument could get me there. It was her telling what she knew to be true, what I could not take from her. She was telling me of her experience of Jesus, and God radically changed my life. I don't know if anyone converted because they lost an apologetic argument. I know a lot of people converted because someone bore witness to the testimony of Jesus' work in their life, changing them. That's success. Fourth excuse, and the bottom line, I think, I'm scared. I'm scared that I'll look like a fool. I'm scared that they may not like me or may not approve of me. I'm scared that they may even hate me or ridicule me or do bad things to me. I feel powerless because of my fears. How can we be empowered? How can we be inspired for the one role we're all to play in the one story? Thirdly, finally, briefly, Luke not only tells us of the one story and of the one role, but also of the one power. Verse 48, you witnesses this. Verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city that is Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Jesus didn't just command his disciples to be a witness in your own strength and to overcome your fears. He told them to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for witness. As you may know, Jesus in verse 49, he's referring to Pentecost. He's referring to a reality that happened in Acts chapter 2 that Christians have enjoyed ever since. That that these very disciples were to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to be given to them so they could be clothed with power from on high. And once the Spirit was given at Pentecost, the church began to grow so rapidly through the witness of these very saints, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so on one level, their experience is unique from ours. We don't have to wait. We live in the age of the Spirit. But at the same time, their experience is paradigmatic for us. And what I mean by that is that it's a model for us and how we are empowered by the same Spirit. Said differently, we are empowered, we are fueled, we are energized for witness in the same way they were. What is it? Worship. Verses 52 and 53. We don't have an evangelism problem. We have a worship problem. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. What were they doing prior to being empowered empowered from on high? They were worshiping continually with God's people. What can we do to be empowered for witness even though we're afraid? Worship God. Value God. Submit to God. Fear God more than we fear man. I know that for me, the greatest obstacle in my life to personal evangelism is great fear. And Luke is saying I have to replace my great fear with great joy. What do we have to be joyful about? What is it that we can worship Jesus for? What is there to bless God for? I intentionally skip verses 50 and 51. This is why they're worshiping. Look at it. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I want you to imagine the scene. We talked about this last week. Jesus is there in his glorious resurrected body with holes in his hands and holes in his side. And as he's lifted up, he ascends to heaven and he has his hands, pardon the pun, his holy hands lifted up as he blesses them. And he doesn't just quickly say, bless you, because they sneezed. Luke says, while he blessed them, he was parted from them. So as he's lifted into into the sky with his hands raised over them, with holes in them, he is saying to them, God loves you. God forgives you. God adores you. God enjoys you. God has great plans for you. God will cherish you forever. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. God bless you. The last vision of Jesus that they have in their minds is his hands. And the last thing they hear from Jesus is the gospel. He loves you. You don't deserve it. They worshiped him. They continued in the temple blessing him. On Monday, my son Liam was acting sheepish and shy and ashamed, and he, he's three. I didn't ask him permission to tell you this, so please, let's not tell him. I'm pretty sure he'd say yes. He's not very bright yet. Don't tell him that either. And so he's acting all shy, and I kind of went to him, and I picked him up, and I instantly, you know, that feeling right there on your side, you're like, you're, I know why you're acting shy now, you know? So he decided to go to his pants instead of go to the potty. And, uh, I said to him, and for those of you that know me, you know that this is completely and utterly the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit because I really like to get frustrated and I frequently sin in my anger. But on this occasion, by God's grace, I looked at him and I said to him, oh, buddy, I love you. We're gonna figure this out. I'm so glad you're mine. And the sheepishness, it turned to confidence. The shame, it turned to rest. And he grabbed my cheeks with his wet hands and he said... I love you, Dad. And he buries his head in the crook of my neck. In chapter 23, as Jesus is dying on the cross, Luke writes in verse 49 of that chapter, and all of his acquaintances and all the women who had followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. They ran from him. They abandoned him. They denied him. They stood at a distance from him. Spiritually, they went in their pants instead of the potty. They soiled themselves. And Jesus goes to them and he says, I love you. You're going to figure this out. I'm so glad you're mine. Before they ever bore witness, he blessed them. Before they ever worshiped, he blessed them. While they were guilty in their sins, he died to bless them. What will alleviate our fear of man and our need for man's approval? Only this, having the approval of God by utter grace. What will give us the experience of joy and peace and hope? We, we need an actual experience of joy, peace, and hope if we're going to bear witness to an experience of joy, peace, and hope. What can bring it? The forgiveness and the love of Almighty God by grace. What will empower our witness? Worship. What do we have to worship Jesus for? That when we soiled ourselves in our sin, he took our shame upon himself and he blessed us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that there's hope in the gospel for a scared man like me. I thank you that there's hope 
in the gospel for a man that doesn't believe all the time like me. I thank you that there's hope in the gospel for, for me that I'd rather talk about facts than reveal my experiences to others. I thank you, Jesus, that yet again we find new mercies this morning. That we have not been witnesses to these things. And we have tried to be the hero of our own story. We pray that you would forgive us. We thank you that you have died for us. We thank you that your spirit is now alive and well in us. We thank you for the hope of being different in the future. Holy Spirit, would you teach us how to worship? Would you take our minds off of what we perceive to be an evangelism problem and would you show us that we have a worship problem? Would you inflame our hearts to worship Christ and go out in his name? In his name we pray.